Welcome to this special launch edition of Thyroid Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Sam Wells at the recent ASCO meeting to discuss what has only recently become an important and relevant disease to medical oncologists. To begin, Dr. Wells discussed recent trends in diagnosis of the disease. Very few people are aware of the fact that the incidence of this tumor is increasing at a rate more rapid than any other solid tumor. And the reasons for this are not entirely clear. At one time, it was thought that it was due to early recognition, intervention of ultrasound and so forth, picking up early tumors. But there are data that have been accrued that it is really increasing at all stages. It's not just early stage disease. And it raises the issue of what the etiology of this problem is, and it really deserves a lot of careful study. And this is occurring incrementally, especially over the last two decades. So this year in the United States, there'll be about 35,000 cases of thyroid cancer. There are four basic types. The most common type, about 60% is papillary thyroid carcinoma. And about 20% are follicular, 10% medullary carcinoma, and 10% anaplastic. And these numbers have generally held true for decades also. Recognition of this disease is usually patient presents with a lump in the neck. One of the good things about thyroid cancer is that it's not a highly lethal malignancy in its most common forms, the papillary and follicular. But the only treatment for this disease is surgical resection. And if patients develop recurrent papillary or follicular carcinoma, they're treated with radioactive iodine. This hasn't changed for 50 years. And there's been really no new interventional therapy in patients who do develop recurrent disease. And there are limits to the amount of radioactive iodine that you can give. There's really no treatment for them. Now, some forms of thyroid cancer are inherited, the medullary carcinomas. And there are different types of these inherited diseases. Could you kind of provide an overview? I guess that's the MEA syndromes, et cetera, you know, sort of MEA 101 without getting into all the complex details, but sort of bottom line, I kind of think the last time I thought about that was quite a while ago. Can you sort of capsulize that? Sure. There are two basic types of what are called multiple endocrine neoplasia syndromes or MEN syndromes. is a type 1 and a type 2. Type 1 does not involve the thyroid. Most commonly, it's parathyroid and a pituitary gland and pancreas. The type 2, virtually all patients who have a type 2 MEN-type syndrome have medullary thyroid carcinoma. It's expressed in virtually 100%. Now, is that most of what medullary carcinoma is, or what fraction of medullary is that? It's about 25%. About 25% of medullary is inherited, and about 75% is sporadic. It just occurs out of a clear blue sky. Can you talk a little bit about the biology of the syndrome and how it ties into our concept of, you know, sort of how thyroid cancer or medullary cancer works, so to speak? Well, it's a fascinating entity because the gene mutation that causes medullary thyroid carcinoma in these inherited syndromes was discovered about 12, 14 years ago. And the RET, R-E-T, proto-oncogene is mutated in virtually all these patients. So you can do a blood test on someone in a family who has this disease and tell whether or not they're going to get the disease or they already have it. It's especially useful in young children who you know are going to develop the malignancy and you test them and you can take the thyroid gland out prior to the time that they develop the malignancy. It's probably the most 
clear example of prophylactic intervention in this situation. And you've published on that. Overall, what do we know about the effectiveness of the surgery in this situation, and how many cases a year get operated on in the United States? Well, it's not a huge number of cases, but anyone who has these kindreds or families that they follow, it's imperative that they test them early. Recently, our group reported 50 young children who had been screened and operated on, and the cure rate in these children is about 95%. These tumors secrete calcitonin. It's an excellent tumor marker, and you can tell if they're cured or not because if the calcitonin stays down, then you know they don't have disease. When these people do develop a medullary thyroid cancer, roughly what age does it occur? Well, this is also an interesting aspect of the disease, and it depends on where the mutation occurs in the RET gene. In some sites, it can occur very early, five, six years of age. In others, codon mutation might not be highly activating, and the disease doesn't develop until 14, 15, 20 years of age, maybe later. So that there is a great impact of where the mutation occurs in clinical expression of disease. Now, do you see the same mutation in the other medullaries that aren't genetic? You see a mutation in about 40 to 50% of the sporadic, the non-familial medullary carcinomas. And the mutation doesn't occur in every cell in the body like it does with the hereditary syndrome. It only occurs in the thyroid gland. These Hmm. are called somatic mutations. That's fascinating. It's virtually always the same mutation. It's called codon 918. It is fascinating, and no one knows why this happens, and no one knows why the people who don't have this mutation have exactly the same type tumor histologically. You can't tell them apart. Now, is this RET mutation seen in other cancers? There's an abnormality of the RET gene in papillary carcinomas, this situation where the children in Chernobyl or the children who were irradiated with external beam develop thyroid cancer, they most commonly have a translocation where part of a chromosome rearranges and places a certain structure called a promoter next to the RET oncogene. The RET gene is normal, but it's driven by this abnormal translocation that occurs in about 30 or 40 percent of papillary carcinomas. What about non-thyroid cancers? There are no other solid cancers or liquid cancers that uh, the proto-oncogene is oncogenic with the exception of one very rare form of prostate cancer, but this has not been confirmed and is not thought to be the case, actually. Do we know sort of pathophysiologically how this mutation sort of relates to the behavior of the disease? Depending on where the mutation is, again, either the tumors are very aggressive or they're not so aggressive. And also, depending on where the mutation is, the patients might develop other organ tumors that are related to this MEN syndrome, but it's fairly complex. Do we know whether or not this sort of pathway has anything to do with the sporadic, even the other types of thyroid cancer? Is it just focused on medullary in these other cases? The RET gene, as far as its mutation, only occurs in medullary thyroid carcinoma. The translocation only occurs in papillary carcinoma. But the other papillary carcinomas most often have what are called BRAF mutations, a mutation in BRAF, which is a RAF oncogene. And we're talking about the large majority of papillary carcinomas are caused by one of these two events. So the other very interesting thing about thyroid cancer is most of the mutations that cause papillary, follicular, and medullary are known. And it opens up the opportunity for therapeutic intervention 
that's new, whereas there'd been nothing previously other than surgery and radioactive iodine. Do we have any tools right now that we think are acting through these pathways? There are several small molecule therapies. There's one that inhibits RET. It's a compound called Zactima, ZD6474. Sure. But when it, I thought about that, I think about EGFR and VEGF. It also goes after RET? I think that's a very good point because these small molecules often have more than one effect. And this compound does affect VEGF, it does affect EGRF, and it does affect RET. And quite candidly, in the trials that have been done with this in thyroid cancer, it's not entirely clear which of those activities is really driving the inhibition of the tumor. It's thought to be RET, but it could equally be VEGF. So I assume RET has nothing to do with lung cancer. RET, as far as we know, has nothing to do with lung cancer. And in terms of that agent, then, are there ways to actually, you mentioned earlier serum assays, are there ways to actually see whether or not, you know, it's affecting the RET pathway? Yes, you can measure both calcitonin, this tumor marker, and CEA, which is also increased substantially in people with this disease. And they generally drop fairly significantly when these patients are treated. It's difficult sometimes to tell whether patients are responding and this is true of many solid tumors, because the tumor might be calcified or it might be infiltrated with amyloids, a structural substance, and the tumor doesn't have the ability to shrink quite like some more vascular tumors do. Interesting. Well, I want to track back into you know how that agent and others are being studied right now, but maybe we can continue on. You know, you've kind of begun the picture, so to speak, and track out more in terms of the stage that's seen the treatment by stage and sort of long-term outcomes of these different types of thyroid tumors? Well, if we start with papillary carcinoma or follicular or medullary, if you operate on these patients early enough, you can cure the disease. And we could talk a long time about what's early enough, but patients who don't have an hereditary disease, the tumor is almost always evident because you feel a nodule in the neck. And again, luckily, patients with papillary carcinoma, especially these are not highly lethal tumors. So if they do develop recurrent disease, which is not uncommon, and thyroid cancers, papillary and follicular, secrete a hormone called thyroglobulin or a substance called thyroglobulin, which is another tumor marker. And if somebody has an elevated thyroglobulin in their blood, they've got follicular cells someplace. And if the thyroid glands out, you would assume that they're metastatic. And these people generally are treated with radioactive iodine. And the problem comes that you can't give unlimited amounts of radioactive iodine. Generally, you get in the range of 700, 800 millicuries, you can start to have bone marrow problems. Leukemia with very high doses is a potential risk. Can these people be cured with radioactive iodine? Some can be cured. Even with metastatic disease? Yes. The disease can certainly be controlled in a large majority of people, but in some people, 10 or 15%, the tumors become resistant. They don't take up radioactive iodine, and those are the ones that are very difficult management problems. Could you talk a little bit about the surgical procedures that are used in this situation in the staging system? Generally, the feeling is that in papillary carcinoma or follicular medullary early on, a thyroidectomy is indicated. Now, there's an argument, quite frankly, about whether you need to take the whole thyroid gland out or whether you need to take just the lobe out that has the tumor. 
that's an oversimplification quite candidly, but the thyroid gland is shaped like a butterfly, if you think of that. It's got two lobes, just like the wings of a butterfly. The problem is, in papillary, there's a fairly high incidence of second tumors that occur in the gland, and it's argued that you should take the whole gland out. It's certainly true of medullary of the hereditary type because that always involves both lobes. So generally, I think, most people perform a total thyroidectomy. And the staging comes related to the size of the tumor and also whether the lymph nodes are positive or not. How extensive a dissection is generally done? Generally, for patients who have a palpable tumor with no lymph nodes that you can feel in the neck, these are structures where the tumor spreads most commonly, a total thyroidectomy is done, the whole gland's removed, and the lymph nodes in what's called the central zone of the neck, from the top of the neck, the hyoid bone, to the beginning of the thoracic inlet, and laterally out to the carotid vessels, that block of tissue is resected. The problem with doing a total thyroidectomy is you can damage the parathyroid glands, which control calcium in the body, or you can damage the recurrent laryngeal nerves, which supply the voice box. So the surgery is not just an entirely simple, no-risk procedure, and it requires some skill to remove this structure completely. Do most surgeons in community practice have that type of skill, or is this the kind of procedure that ought to be done in a tertiary center? I think a well-trained surgeon in community practice could do this procedure. If they're more complicated situations, extensive lymph node involvement, or if the tumor's growing into the trachea, the windpipe, those really ought to be handled by surgeons who have a great deal of experience with those. What's the staging system, and sort of what fraction of people break into what stage? Generally, the so-called TNM system is used, the tumor node metastatic. T1 lesions are a certain size, generally less than two centimeters, and it goes up and down based on the size of the tumor. N0 means no lymph node involved. So most of the patients who present initially with papillothyroid carcinoma, T1, probably N0, N1 type tumors with no metastatic disease, and then I say about probably 50, 60% of patients have that. Maybe 10, 20% will have stage 2 with a T2 lesion, N1 or N2. And very rarely you see patients with primary disease being seen for the first time who will have metastatic disease, will present with disease beyond the neck. That's uncommon. Now, do all these patients get post-operative iodine or just certain of them? Virtually all of them do. And it's not just to destroy any tumor cells. You want to destroy all of the thyroid glands so you can follow these patients accurately. Because theoretically, if you do destroy every follicular cell, you won't have any thyroglobin in the bloodstream. And it's probably the most effective way to measure these patients. Maybe we can move on then in terms of the patient then who does develop progressive disease in spite of radioactive iodine and sort of what the options have been in the past and what some of the new options are? Well, there haven't been many options in the past. It's been one of the very difficult things about this disease. I mean, you would have a patient whose thyroid tumor had metastatic disease or locally advanced disease, and there was no uptake, radioactive iodine. Those people would be treated with chemotherapeutic regimens that you might pick for lung or breast or colon. It was somewhat empirical. And as I said, this had been the case for decades And only recently, with these new mutational pathways becoming evident, that it was realized that there were compounds which would be effective in these patients. 
and there are several available right now that are in clinical trial as we speak, some of which have shown substantial progress. Could you kind of go through them? You mentioned the one, Zactima. It's ZD6474. Right, ZD6474. Could you talk a little bit about specifically what's been seen with some of these agents? Well, we did a phase two study of 30 patients, all of whom had hereditary disease because we knew they would have a RET mutation. And these patients all had locally advanced or metastatic, distant metastatic disease. And the response rate was about 25%. Now, you might hear this and say, well, that's not a very high response rate. These are resist criteria, partial remissions. About 60 or 70% of the patients had stable disease. We only had two patients develop progressive disease. And this, again, relates to what's the best way to define the endpoints for these types of patients when you're going to treat them. We're seeing more people talk about waterfall plots, where you look at what fraction of patients actually had some tumor shrinkage. Did you do that in the study? We did a waterfall plot. If you look at all of the 30 patients who were treated, there were only two patients who had progressive disease. We had seven patients who had greater than 30% decrease in the size of the tumor, but a substantial number who were in the range of, say, 10 to 20% or 25%. Again, it's, these patients had substantial improvement in quality of life and diarrhea decrease and other things. But Markers? Markers. Almost all of them had a greater than 50% decrease really? in calcitonin. Huh. This is, I think you have to be somewhat careful about this because... There's been some evidence that this compound, ZD6474, inhibits secretion of calcitonin. Mm. But CEA was also decreased in these patients. And one of the striking things about this drug is that their responses are durable when they occur. We have some patients that have been on this compound over two years and are still in remission. What have you been seeing in terms of side effects and tolerability? The side effects are generally two primarily. It's diarrhea and rash. This compound also prolongs the QT interval. This was not as large of a problem as we thought it might be, this electrocardiogram QT interval. But generally, it's well tolerated. Is it it a TKI-type rash? Right. And it's just as difficult to deal with as TKI rash? Well, generally, if they get it, they'll get it in the first two weeks of treatment, and we try to treat through it. Almost every patient on this study has had a dose reduction Started 300 milligrams a day, most are on 200 milligrams a day. Usually because of what? Usually the rate-limiting toxicity is diarrhea, most commonly, but skin rash also. Some people are not bothered by skin rash. It doesn't occur in every patient. Do you see tachyphylaxis? No. Hmm. That's interesting. And that's it? Nothing, no other major, no myelosuppression or any other? There's no myelosuppression. There's no gastrointestinal difficulty except for the diarrhea, some mild nausea. What about VEGF-type things like hypertension? We saw elevated blood pressure in most patients, but it occurs in the 5 to 10 millimeter range increase. It's certainly something that is commonly seen. It's not a rate-limiting complication, but you see it. What do we know about angiogenesis and thyroid cancers in general, medullary specifically? Well, this has been studied, actually, with this specific compound. Not so much direct angiogenesis measurements, but wound healing's been studied by Herb Hurwitz at Duke's, been reported actually at this meeting, I think, three years ago. With 6474? Right. Really? Uh, It was done as part of a first phase one study where this compound was being looked at, standpoint of the PK studies and also the 
toxicity and tolerability, ranging in doses from 500 to 600 milligrams. And he also studied wound healing in these patients with punch biopsies and looking at actual time of healing, did studies of vascular ingrowth. And there's no question about the fact that it does impede vascular proliferation in these biopsies. That's fascinating. How does the effect in terms of proliferation as well as wound healing compare to what you see with bevacizumab? I assume it's been looked at in the same systems. And quite frankly, I don't think any direct comparisons between the two. It's difficult for me to answer that. What about bevacizumab and thyroid cancer? Any reason to look at it or has it been looked at? I think it's been looked at in one study and did not show an effect. So that's very interesting in terms of these responses. Just sort of parenthetically, what do you think about the sort of waterfall approach to evaluation of agents, particularly biologics? I think it's a technique where you can get an instant freeze-frame analysis of what the effect of an agent is. And I think it's useful in quantitating the types of responses that you see in a given number of patients. It's effective because you can look at 50 patients in one plot. I think the FDA very much likes resist criteria, and they like reduction in tumor size. What other agents are out there that are showing encouraging results? There's also a study that's going to be reported at this meeting of a 706 compound, Steve Sherman from MD Anderson. This also has shown a response primarily in patients with differentiated tumors, either papillary or follicular. What's the structure or mechanism of action of this agent? It's primarily a VEGF inhibitor. And I think in the phase one study that was done, they noticed that there was a fairly potent inhibition in a certain number of patients with thyroid cancer. I think there were two patients who had responded, so it caught the attention of the group. And it also inhibits RET? It has some RET activity. Quite candidly, that's not known exactly. It's not been published. What has been seen in terms of the clinical trials, in terms of efficacy, as well as side effects and toxicities? I think the primary problem with that has been elevation in blood pressure. This problem is also, as I understand, there's been some mild neurotoxicity with it. And again, there's been some evidence of rash and diarrhea, standard things you would see, but blood pressure has been the primary, I think, problem. Now, these two agents that you've talked about, which specific types of thyroid cancer have they been studied in, and what would you expect in terms of efficacy in the different types? The compound has been studied in medullary. It's also been looked at in papillary and follicular, and the primary effect has been in papillary and follicular, the differentiated types of thyroid carcinoma. The ZD6474 compound has been effective in hereditary medullary carcinoma, but there's a trial ongoing now with both hereditary and sporadic medullary thyroid carcinoma. There's also going to be a trial primarily based in Europe, Martin Schlamberger at Villechuif, where they are studying patients with papillary carcinoma who have translocations that would activate RET. So I think within another year, 18 months, these other studies will be completed. The second trial with the ZD6474 is moving very rapidly. It will close ahead of schedule. What's that looking at? It looks at both sporadic and hereditary, 280 patient studies, something in that range. What's the design? It's an interesting design. It's set up as a randomized phase two where, and again, this is in discussions with the FDA, where the randomization is between this drug and placebo. And there's a crossover, so if patients progress on the placebo, they can get ZD6474. How many deaths are there every year, and what tumor types are they coming from? Well, almost all of the deaths in thyroid cancer are from the least common types. We haven't said much about anaplastic carcinoma, right. which is 5 or 10%. 
It's a highly lethal malignancy. There are very few five-year survivals. Matter of fact, if you do have a five-year survival, it raises the question of whether the correct diagnosis was made. And there's probably no organ in the body with a greater range of biologic activity of these tumor sets, papillary, relatively mild, slow-growing tumor, and anaplastic, highly lethal. And unfortunately, there's no treatment for anaplastic now. And the mutation Are they operating on some people operate on them, but it usually is a futile attempt. But they're operated on because these patients can die in asphyxic death. It's a very difficult problem. Well, how do they present? They present usually in an older age. It's a tumor that develops in elderly people in the 60, 70, 80-year range. And they present with very far advanced disease. These tumors come up and develop very rapidly. They have a fixed mass in the neck with distant metastases, many of them are not operable. It's very difficult to remove these tumors. And most of them are treated with external beam radiotherapy just to control the local tumor and its invasive properties into the larynx. These are highly undifferentiated tumors. Most of them, there's very good evidence that most of them develop from pre-existing papillary carcinomas or follicular carcinomas. If you look carefully and do serial sections, you almost always find some elements of differentiated papillary follicular in the tumor. What do we know about the pathobiology of what's going on? Well, it's been looked at, and there is not nearly as clear a molecular pathway set for these tumors as you see with papillary and follicular and medullary. So it's unclear. They're very undifferentiated wild-type tumors, and at this point, it's not known. Can you talk a little bit about some of the palliative problems that occur in these patients? How much of it's local? How much of it's more typical metastatic disease? Well, the problem with uh, progressive disease in the neck, if the tumor gets outside and invades the surrounding structures, if you feel your neck, it's a bony collar. I mean, there's a certain fixed amount of space. So as the tumor expands, it's going to compromise the structures that are in the this funnel. And the one that's most vulnerable is the trachea because the trachea is not made up of rings. It's got a partial ring like a C, but it can be compressed. And this is a problem both with benign and malignant thyroid tumors. They become very large. The airway can be compromised. So this is the most recognized local threatening problem. And in cancer, it's usually controlled by external beam radiotherapy. Unfortunately, with the initial external beam radiotherapy, there's some tissue swelling. It can occur any place in the body. You have to be careful of this. And in some cases, surgical resection of recurrent tumor. But this is not a very graceful way to go about handling these patients. It's not a curative process, but in many of these patients, it can be a procedure that gives substantial relief, especially if they have airway obstruction. The distant metastases usually are to lung with follicular, very commonly to bone, and liver and brain are sites that are down the road. And these are usually treated with radioactive iodine if they take this up. If they don't, you're back in again to this either empirical chemotherapeutic multi-agent approach or selected targeted therapy. And some patients with distant metastatic disease have had fairly dramatic responses to these therapeutic compounds. But again, it's a small percentage of the total number of patients treated. We're in the 25 30% range. So how often do you see people who die of asphyxiation and compression of the trachea or local problems? 
It's very uncommon with papillary and follicular and medullary. It's a problem in patients with anaplastic. And most of the patients are those with anaplastic, some medullary cases that grow very aggressively. I think these compounds that inhibit RET are going to open avenues with much more promise for these patients than had been existing before. Some of the responses you see with these compounds are dramatic. I'm talking to people with substantial bulky metastatic disease. Because sometimes just hearing about one or two cases, mm-hmm. particularly when you have an agent that's so targeted, really kind of conveys a message. Any patient, for example, out of those 30 that you recall that was particularly interesting clinically? I think the most dramatic response we had was a young woman about 35 years old, had widely metastatic medullary carcinoma, had skull metastases. It's not uncommon for medullary to metastasize to breast. Reasons for this aren't entirely clear. She had liver metastases, lung she had a calcitonin of 250,000. Calcitonin normally is about seven or eight picograms a mil. Wow. What was her performance status and symptom state? She was working. She actually worked as an advisor, a navigator for the American Cancer Society at hmm. a hospital in Ohio. But she had substantial diarrhea. And when these patients develop an elevated calcitonin level, usually around 30,000 picograms a mil, they'll get diarrhea that can be incapacitating. She had a dramatic response. She sent me an email one evening because her first thing that went away with a skull pain, she said she couldn't comb her hair previously, and those resolved. Her breast lesion's almost gone. She had a lung lesion that's remitted, a liver lesion. She gained about 20 pounds. Did she have a complete response radiologically? No, she didn't. She had a partial remission. Her calcitonin now is about 1,300. Wow. She dropped very quickly. And she's been in treatment with ZD6474 for almost two years. Wow. She's had two dose reductions. She's down to 100 milligrams a day. What kinds of side effects has she had? She had initially skin rash, and she's also had some diarrhea. But what happened was in some of these patients trading a disease-related diarrhea for a drug-related diarrhea. But generally, at 200 milligrams, it's really a mild effect on the gastrointestinal tract, and patients generally tolerate that dose very well. And how much of a rash did she have? She had a rash that was mostly confined to the upper torso. Not dramatic. The diarrhea was the major issue for her. Any correlation between either the rash or diarrhea and response that you've seen? You know, we haven't. That's something that we thought we might see. But there hasn't been, either with rash or with diarrhea. No, what kind of rash or diarrhea, if any, does she have now in the lower dose? She has no rash now, and she has minimal diarrhea. She's on 100 milligrams a day. So we're entering a period with some of these patients where if you're going to see late effects of drug toxicity, you might see it. What are the late effects? I mean, there are rets expressed in several organ systems, in the kidney, the central nervous system. And I think one of the problems that pharmaceutical industry faces is these new compounds that come out, especially these block metabolic pathways, are they going to be effects that might not be evident for two or three years of treatment? Anything in particular that you're concerned about or thinking about? We've been concerned about central nervous system, rest expressed in cerebellum, for example. We haven't seen patients who've had any instability or change of gait or, you know, motility problems. And that's the primary thing that would be concerning. Hmm. So far, we haven't seen it. Interesting. I'm just trying to, you know, imagine, you know, there's so many desperate cancer patients out there with situations where we don't have conventional therapy and 
I think even oncologists can get discouraged about referring people for, you know, phase one or new trials. Well, I think the most dramatic response with these targeted therapies that block pathways that occurred with Brian Drucker's work with CML. And I mean, that was almost like something biblical. I don't mean to be corny about right. this, but you're talking about 90% cytologic remissions and liquid tumors like that. You don't worry about whether it changes 20 or 30%. You can do a blood count. And those were fairly dramatic responses. And the thing that was so interesting about that disease and about GIST tumors with these compounds is the molecular studies that were done of the tumors when patients went into remission, you could tell why they were failing. They would get new mutations in what's called the activation side of the gene. And I think that's what is so critical with these new compounds. You have to do the correlative science, so to speak, the molecular analysis of the tumors, especially when patients recur, because there's a reason they recur. I mean, there's a molecular reason they recur. And they've developed secondary therapies that block these new mutations, and the rescue effect is remarkable. It's really quite something. What kind of translational work, if any, have you done on the 30 patients in the trial? I'm embarrassed to tell you this, that we did not do any in this first trial. It's somewhat difficult to get tumor in these patients. Hmm. But in the second trial, we are doing correlative science studies. And we actually have a study that I'm doing in collaboration with some colleagues at the National Cancer Institute. I guess the other issue, too, on these rare tumors, I mean, so much of clinical research now is getting driven out of industry. There's a reason why there's so many trials in breast, lung, and colon from a pure economic point of view. How do we solve that? That's a very interesting problem. And I think that there's a good and a bad to it. I mean, these are major public health problems if you look at the lung, breast, colon array. But what's happened paradoxically is in thyroid cancer, for example, most of these mutational pathways are known. That's not true of lung. It's true of some breast. It's true of some colon, but not most. So you don't have as targeted approach as you have. Well, here we are sitting with thyroid cancer. We're probably going to skip a couple of steps in going from understanding the molecular analysis to targeted therapy. That's what's happening with these compounds. So of the 30, that story you just told, anybody hears it, they know what happened. How many of those 30 patients had not necessarily such a dramatic response, but, you know, if you present each one of those 30 to me or an oncologist, how many of those would we say, that patient definitely had some kind of a positive impact? I would say if you take the patients who had, quote, stable disease, end of quote, and patients who had objective remissions measured by reduction in tumor size, we're talking about 70, 80 percent of these patients. I think this is going to be a medical oncology problem, quite Mm -hmm. frankly. I think whatever compound in the form of targeted therapy, whether you have Gleevec or agents, they're relatively easy to give. You're talking about a pill a day. And one thing that medical oncologists have is an infrastructure set up to deal with this. They have data managers and nurse clinicians, and we talk about these things like they're terms, but they're so critical to the evaluation and managing these patients who are on a clinical study.